everyone. Today is October 3rd, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So I'm delighted to welcome again to the podcast uh, Michael Smotherman. Smotherman. Michael Smotherman. <laughs> Uh, who is now Professor of Biology and Director of the Neurosciences Institute at Texas A&M College Station. Um, Mike's neural and behavioral studies in bats are shedding light on vocal communication and echolocation as a model system for understanding how multiple brain pathways interact to control behavior on a millisecond timescale. It's also informing strategies for building bigger, better man-made sonar, which I guess consistently underperforms relative to biosonar, especially in complex environments, in real environments, yes? Yes. Okay. So you're that's working for I, the that's Navy. That's what I'm told. Yeah. That's what they pay you to do. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So um, around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi, guys. Mike, can we talk echolocation, just the very basics? So just in, in terms of bats, they're, they're, they're both social and vocal animals that navigate complex, noisy environments, and they build their sensory representation of the world largely through this echolocalization process. But so can you just briefly describe it because I realized today that I've always assumed that vocalizations or, or calls uh, like like singing are completely distinct from the sonar pulses emitted for use in echolocation. That's right, right? Because you, you look at the interaction of those two systems. Can you just talk about the pulses and versus vocalizations and, and how they... Yeah, so uh, to begin with, bats uh, use the same kinds of social calls that other mammals use. Right? So, so they have to communicate with each other uh, and they do it through the same mechanisms that other animals do. Uh, and on top of that, they've built this sonar system. And functionally, behaviorally, we think of them as separate types of vocalizations. So we intentionally use the word sonar pulses uh, as opposed to social vocalizations or communications. But they're both produced by the larynx, uh, the same motor pathway, and they're both processed by the auditory system. But I should, I have to interject here when you have to, you're denigrating the specialness of bats in terms of their vocal communication because they are one of the few animals, not like most other mammals, that actually learn their vocalizations by imitation and have a complex learned rep repertoire, depending on the bat. Uh, yes, some people think that. Uh -huh. You're right. There is some evidence that there are a few bats that have a limited capacity for learned vocalizations. Uh, but I st So that's good uh, enough for me. I'm, I'll be okay <laughs> with that. Put me on the spot there. Um, you know, the, the vocal learning is kind of tricky. And the examples of vocal learning in bats are, are, are not that pretty when you look at them up close. There's certainly nothing like what a, a zebra finch does. Uh, and, and also, you could probably, if you tried hard enough, you could find similar evidence in other animals. And just no one's ever really tried that hard. So, uh, you know, for example, in the bats that supposedly use vocal learning, a lot of it is just slight changes in bandwidth or loudness, uh, which any animal can do. Uh -huh. You could probably train your cat to do it if you withhold food long enough. <laughs> so uh, I don't want to make too big a deal of that. On the other hand, what is true is that uh, because of the sonar, bats do have a rather extraordinarily precise control of the sound of their voice. They can control the loudness and the duration and the pitch more precisely and even than humans. Uh, and it, 
I don't really think it's related to vocal learning per se, and so it's kind of a mistake to, to lump it in that category, but it is accurately considered uh, one of the most precise forms of sensory motor control uh, that you'll find in a mammal. Right, well that's what, in some ways, that's what may make the, the cetaceans or the other echolocators that are also have uh, vocal learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, and so they have this very precise sensory motor. They have control. They they care about it. They care about self-generated stuff, and they also do uh, uh, vocal learning. But you know, better, more demonstrably than bats. But besides us, they're we're really the only mammals. The birds are a whole different thing. But the behavioral relevance of, of these limited calls that you describe them are, are, are defined. I mean, they have, a, they have an impact on how the conspecifics relate to one another. They have relevance. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, the social calls have pretty stereotyped uh, social functions. Uh, and for bats, some of the bats, it's been pretty well mapped out. But it's not that different from what you'd see in other mammals. Uh, but then, you know, really, the, the sonar has its own unique function. And from a, a neurobiological perspective, that's really the benefit of bats. Uh, mm -hmm. They're really not the best animal for studying social communication, even though they're interesting. Uh, but from the sonar perspective, you know exactly what they care about. Why does sonar require such precise control of vocalization? Couldn't I hear the echo of any old sound that I made? Um, so, when bats are, 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 are flying around, the acoustic environment is constantly changing. Uh, the things that the echoes are bouncing off of are changing. And, and bats probably learn uh, very early in their development that by making different sounds, they get different types of information back. Uh, and actually, that might be really exciting. I think that during that first 30 days of life, the bats are experimenting with producing sounds, hearing echoes, and then figuring out what those echoes mean. But I think they, they learn through that process iteratively that you produce like long, constant frequency sounds, and you can get fairly good echoes from long distances that don't carry a lot of information. And then they learn that if they're close by, they by, by increasing the bandwidth of their pulses uh, and shortening them, they can increase the detail that's within those echoes. There's some evidence that this happens automatically during development, that, that young bats just sort of go through a natural progression and start producing these echoes, uh, these, these pulse echo sequences. Uh, but there's also evidence that they have to have experience with the objects in order to know what they mean. When do they, when do they start flying? How, how young are they when they really fly around? Uh, and where in that process is it? I mean, there's lots of different answers probably because it's lots of different bats. Yeah, well, I'll answer for our local bat. Uh, so it's about six weeks, four to six weeks uh, before they start coming out of the cave. And during those first trips, uh, I mean, it's pretty comical. Uh, you can go see this happening at, at Bracken Cave in late July. You get just swarms of these little baby bats coming out of the cave, and they just latch onto the first tree they find. <laughs> and they kind of made it around. And, you know, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing or what they're looking for. They just know instinctively 
that uh, there's probably food out here. But that's their first experience of the world. And even then, in those first flights, uh, it's probably it's pretty clumsy. I doubt that they're really interpreting the echoes the way an adult bat would. They have to learn what uh, those delays translate into in terms of distance and, and target shape. Uh, and then I'm sure it's even longer, probably a few more weeks before they can effectively catch insects on the wing. Are they running into each other? As they swarm in out of the cave, it always looks like the bats are not colliding with each other, even though they're really close. Yeah, that's funny. Um, they definitely collide into each other, and it's not a big deal. They, they can whack into each other, and it's, they're not like airplanes. They can <laughs> drop, flop, and, and get going again. So it, it's apparently not fatal. So you, you've been looking at some of the particular challenges of, of how bats in these large groups, and they, they live in these huge colonies together, um, how they coordinate their sonar systems to, um, to minimize interference with one another, and hopefully at some point learn not to knock into one another and, and, and how to sort of figure out what's signal and what's noise. And so can you, can you like say something about that problem and, and how you guys approach it and what you sort of, what the, the key result? Um, yeah, so um, that, that was a, a series of experiments uh, that uh, we didn't know what we were looking for exactly when we started it. Uh, we actually had in the back of our mind the electric fish literature, uh, but it was hard to imagine uh, exactly what the bats would do. So the early experiments were quite simple. We put a bat in a cage in front of us, and we put a speaker next to it that pretended to be another bat. And we just played sounds, and we listened to the bat, and we looked at how our sounds affected that bat. And really, uh, when I think back, uh, I had a student, wonderful student, Jenna Jarvis, and we decided that if there was an effect, it had to be pretty quick because the echoes come back within around 10 milliseconds. So she spent a long time doing all this work, looking at what happened 10 to 20 milliseconds around when the bats emitted pulses. And we weren't finding anything. Uh, and so then we said, well, let's just put two bats together and see what happens. Right? Maybe there's something wrong with our stimulus. And she spent a few months working with this. She would put one bat in a cage and record its behavior put the other bat in the cage and record its behavior, and then put them both in the cage and put them together. And she got really frustrated. She came to me and she said, this is never going to work. Like, why? What can go wrong? And she said, well, when they're together, they stop calling. And I went, okay. <laughs> and that turned out to be the answer, that they were interfering with each other. So stop calling, vocalizing, or yes. stop emitting pulses? Because well, this is confusing me yeah, over no, and over uh, the sonar pulses. Uh -huh. So we would do something simple. We would count you know, the pulse rate as the right. bat explored its cage. And so it was always around 10 to 15 pulses per second. And so you do it for one and you do it for the other. And when she put them in together, invariably one of them would stop calling mm -hmm. or the overall pulse rate would just drop down. Mm -hmm. And it messed up her statistics. But that turned out to be the effect that we, we didn't anticipate. That, that one bat when it emits a pulse, it suppresses the other bat. And, and when they're not flying, it's not urgent that they emit pulses, so it can be really dramatic. So she did an experiment where we just kept adding more bats to the cage, and you just saw this beautiful exponential drop in the pulse rate per bat that was perfectly mathematically predictable. 
once you knew what was happening. And we also learned that we were just off on the time scale. We thought that this would be on a millisecond time scale, and it turned out that the suppression was on the order of 80 to 100 milliseconds. So what about in situations where they're navigating and they need to emit the pulses, but they're still in a close group? I mean, is that a different, it's a completely different context? And Exactly. So, so to address that, uh, we built the, a rope maze. We thought we'd create a challenging environment where the bats had to emit a lot of pulses and then see if it happened. And it turned out it still happened. Uh, and it was exactly the same. The bats were emitting more pulses, but at the same time, they were also being suppressed by their neighbors. Uh, and for the longest time, uh, it was pretty hard to explain this. If it was just two bats, you can envision a phase shift that would keep them out of phase with each other and solve all their problems. But that's not really practical. I mean, in real life, these bats are living with millions of other bats. Mm -hmm. So uh, it turns out that they're just following a probabilistic function. Now, you can show mathematically that, in fact, by reducing the number of pulses emitted, if all the bats as a group emit fewer pulses, they actually get more of their own echoes back. Uh, and that's kind of hard. It's not intuitive. But rather than, the alternative is everybody calls more often, and that makes the situation worse. Then they just start jamming each other constantly. So as the number of bats in a given space increases, they all have to emit fewer and fewer pulses. And they're getting less information than if they were alone, but they're getting more information than what they would get in the group. So there is a net increase in information. Uh, and that, uh, ironically, was discovered in 1974 <laughs> in, a, in, a, in the internet. Uh, a, uh, a guy named Abramson, uh, who was developing the internet in Hawaii. They were building a, a the story is they had a, one computer on the mainland at their main university, and then Hawaii had a set of campuses on all the other islands, and they wanted to give computer access to all the other universities. So they gave them terminals and a radio, so the terminal could communicate with the home computer. But they were all using the same radio channel. And so almost as soon as they turned it on and people started using it, they just jammed each other. Nobody could communicate with the home computer. So they had to invent rules. And so they invented these original rules uh, that they called the back-off algorithm, where the computer sent a command through the radio, uh, and it waited for a reply, uh, a confirmation. If it didn't get it, it waited a certain amount of time and resent it but they couldn't have all the different terminals on the different islands using the same algorithm. So they built in this randomization process, and that smoothed everything out. Uh, that was called AlohaNet, and those rules are still in place today with most wireless internet technologies. And bats. And it turned out bats were doing the exact same thing. But, you know, one of the things about the problem, if you're flying in a whole bunch of bats, right, this is what, you don't have to worry about echolocating. You just have to worry about not running into somebody else that's surrounding you because they're going to run into whatever you did first, right? You're not going to get any bugs anyway because there's too many bugs. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're, yeah. when they're swarming, I don't know how much yeah. they're doing. I mean, the ones on the edge have to worry about not running into to things. But, mm -hmm. but 
the whole thing doesn't filter through some, you know, you don't have a huge swarm filtering through some rope maze or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So mostly what you have to do is just stop being avoided, being hit by your neighbors, and presumably you hear their their occasional echolocating calls, and you just don't run into that. And they're really out looking for bugs and stuff. They separate off in the group so that they don't have this problem, right? Yeah. So there's several stages that, you know, this is completely unstudied. But when they're emerging from a cave, they, they are avoiding predators. Right? It's, it's evening, it's twilight, and the main predators for bats are, are birds of prey. So you don't want to be on the edge of the stream. And I imagine that this stream of bats creates an acoustic flow field. And if I was a bat, my goal would be to constantly move towards the center of the acoustic flow. Even though I might not be able to hear my own echoes, if I can do that, I'm safe. And then you get one or two kilometers high away from the cave, and then they all separate and go do their hunting. So how, what's the acuity of sonar? I mean, how well can they see with that? Is there, is there a mm -hmm. simple measure of acuity that could be used to give us a notion of, of how clear image they get of what they're looking at? That must be important for... Uh -huh for like man-made sonars too, like how do we measure that? What's the figure of merit for a sonar? Right, so um, one of the ways you can get at that is look at how finely they can discriminate between echo delays. So if you give them two targets, one just slightly different than the other, that second target will come back a little bit later. But electronically, you can put two speakers there and then you can change the delay. Uh, a guy named Jim Simmons did these experiments, uh, and he was able to get down into the microsecond range. Bats were able to discriminate microsecond differences in the delay between two echoes, which is extraordinary. But that means it gets better as things get farther away. No, no, no. I mean, that distance is going to reflect how well they can What's the finest, say, uh... uh I see. that, distance. And that's the distance away from me, right? If everything is at the exact same distance from me, then uh, I have to use some kind of binaural Well, measure, um, all right, I? so, yeah, so, well, there's two things here. I mean, one is just overall distance is going to be dependent upon how sensitive the ear is. But for a given distance, uh, they can make these microsecond uh, distinctions, uh -huh. which translate into you know, sub-millimeter uh, spatial sub resolution. So, so that means different parts of the same object would be given different delays, mm -hmm. and so you could tell something about the structure of the thing that you're looking at. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. So they are presumably getting enough information to reconstruct the shape of a, a fly or a mosquito. Yeah, but so that's a little bit like... So it's like... Because we ask the same question about how well can we see, you know, yeah. what's our resolution. Mm -hmm. And so you can do, if you have two lines and you ask, that they're collinear, you ask how far do you have to change, uh, move one of them so that you can tell the difference that they're not exactly lined up. Uh, well, you get you don't have to move them very far. That's super special because that's for an answer. Yeah, but if you have two dots, whether you can see that they're two dots or one, mm -hmm. You get a different answer about the uh, resolution. But both of those happening. are pretty useful. Yeah, but if you have a complex scene, is that the same resolution? Mm -hmm. You could tell a Bart in the complex scene whether two different things are the same or different. Mm -hmm. You probably get it's a different 
uh, level of spatial resolution that you can do if you have to do something more complicated, right? right? So, yeah, so, so, but if I'm make, making a, a machine that's supposed to do object recognition, I could develop some kind of figure of merit for my machine, given the objects I want it to recognize. Given the objects you want to do. So the microsecond, the microsecond resolution thing is a very like clean uh, experiment with just pure temporal delays, right? So you're not making a complex object. But you can't different. turn that into a, whether the bat can see the two wings of the bug or whether it just knows it's a bug. Right, and if there's two bugs right next to each other, or not. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some evidence that the bats can pay attention to multiple objects in space, but, but who knows how well they're actually classifying those different targets at one time. So another point of clarification, which is related to this, so from the output end of this, are the pulses all stereotyped? Because you could imagine if a bat's navigating and wants to see things distally, they sort of throw out a, a, a higher energy or lower frequency or whatever pulse versus when they're really hunting around and maybe they have a different set of, uh, of frequencies that they use to sort of try to differentiate things at a, at a more proximal uh, level is is or is it always one sweep or one type of one output? Uh, no, they, so they can change the rate and the duration uh, of the pulse and the bandwidth. So they they can change everything about it, uh, and that raises some questions about how they're actually comparing the the echo to the outgoing pulse, because that's uh, there is good evidence that they're basically doing. Uh, a cross-correlation between the pulse they just emitted and the echo they just received, and then trying to extract the differences between them. And, and that means that there has to be uh, an efference copy of the motor program that was just emitted, or they're actually just hearing themselves and storing a copy of that sound they just emitted, and then comparing it to the echo that comes back. And that uh, is really a complete mystery, like how that can happen. It's fascinating to think about computationally that their brain's doing that. Basically this cross-correlation in, you know, in less than a few milliseconds. Uh, but I have no idea how a, a brain would do that. Do we have any idea where in the brain that's, that's happening? Because like in birds, there's all these experiments where they've just messed up different parts of the brain and they mess up different aspects of bird song learning or production, and it's been, it's a little bit confusing, but it's been very beneficial, I would say, overall, in trying to figure out how bird sound works. So, uh, and it's a similar kind of problem, right? The bird has to remember the template and that kind of stuff, and where? Do we know where? I don't. So, uh, I really don't have a guess I mean, either. Uh, we think, like, maybe primary auditory cortex, because it seems like you're, you're working on primary auditory cortex, so... Maybe that choice reveals your secret <laughs> prejudice about where it's happening. Uh, you know, uh, it could be happening lower than that. Uh, a lot happens in the midbrain, in the auditory midbrain. And in fact, there's probably a lot of their basic sensory motor functions are just being guided by midbrain circuits. So it's entirely possible that that kind of comparison happening at a low level. And then the output is what's getting sent up to the auditory cortex. Uh, but I don't know. Can we tell anything about that from, from the responses of auditory cortex neurons? So there's, there are neurons that mm -hmm. are paying attention to the, to the echo delay. 
Right, and they require input from the outgoing pulse and the, the returning echo. Uh, the problem is you find those at almost every stage of processing. Uh -huh. Right, so uh, I think this is true of some of the other systems, but you have like the delay tuning and uh, duration tuning uh, and, and other features that are showing up at low levels, like the inferior colliculus, and then they also show up in the cortex, but for some crazy reason, they're not simply being translated, they're being rebuilt at each stage, reconstructed, which makes no sense to me at all, but it is what it is, right? So this, uh, the, the local cortical circuits are reconstructing the same thing that was already built in the inferior colliculus. So, yeah, that's puzzling. <laughs> but, uh, but once you've got that set of echo delays, it doesn't really immediately tell you where the object is or, or what it is. It, it sort of tells you maybe something about how far away it is. But, um, but the brain must, must build an, some kind of a hypothesis about the object from that information. But it's like the, the first step is being repeated over and over again at all these different levels, but where are all the other n minus 1 steps that are required to turn that into a, there's a bug out there? Right, an object that matters, yeah. Well, certainly I uh, imagine that these, uh, the temporal cues, the delay cues, are important for binding together all of the other information. So that if you get an echo from two feet away and, and uh, two meters away uh, from the same pulse, you know, they're going to come back within a short time frame of each other, but they can have completely different spectral properties. And the brain has to separate those, but at the same time, bind all that information and then process it independently. And it must be doing this over time because bugs follow a continuous path in space. And so you expect the echo delay to be changing for an object over time in some kind of orderly fashion. And the, and the bat in your videos is correcting his trajectory to intersect the bug mm -hmm. um, as a part of some continuous process in time. It's not just a snapshot in a moment. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of stuff, so there must be a echo, delay, uh, evolution recognizer, right? This one's getting farther from me, this one's getting closer, this one's staying at the same distance. Right, that brings up two important points of discussion. Uh, one is attention. Attentional processes are probably huge in a bat, that they are essentially filtering out all of the extraneous noise and meaningless things, and when they find something that matters, then the attentional processes are changing the way the auditory system is processing that. Uh, the other thing is that attentional processes are guiding the, the pulse output. And so they're manipulating their pulse sequence, the rate and the temporal pattern in order to extract the most information about an object that they're focused on. Uh, so yeah, attentional processes, that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, I'll get that into my next lifeline. But they also, so they use, so one of the things is we, you know, we think about echo delays, they really, you focus on the temporal processing and delay processing. But it's, especially with the optic recognition, a lot of it's spectral, right? 
in the sense that you get different interference patterns from an object uh, that are nearby, right? The echo is, has a whole bunch of different interference patterns at different frequencies. But you also, to do the localization, you have spectral issues uh, as part of the localization uh, mechanism. So do they do more or less, I don't know, do the, does anybody know whether, say, objects that are low down or up, further up or different pin locations affect their ability to do object recognition? Or do you think those, they, inter, they interact, put it that way? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, does anybody know? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't know. Uh, and I can't point you to anyone that does. Does anybody think about it, I guess, is the question. Um, but does it matter? Almost certainly. Right? Now, to some extent, I imagine that those factors are going to be really similar to what other animals face as well. So there's probably nothing too unique about just uh, binaural sound localization in the bats, other than they're really good at it. Um, but uh, you mentioned frequency. Frequency does matter. Uh, this is one of the things that's usually kind of difficult to explain to students, but by using these broadband pulses, they're actually getting a lot of other information because of the frequency dependent attenuation. So if you emit a broadband pulse uh, that goes out two meters and comes back, it's not going to sound the same way, even if it bounces off a perfectly flat surface. The farther it has to go, the lower those uh, higher frequencies go relative to the low frequencies. So you end up with the spectral gradient that corresponds to the distance of the target. So just right there you have extra information uh, in addition to just the pulse echo delays. So bats don't rely on any single cue to do a lot of these calculations. A lot of this stuff, I mean, I was just thinking about uh, radar-controlled air-to-air uh, uh, -air missiles. Basically, similar problem because the missile has to detect its target and then the target is moving around and all the missile has is this delay in the radar beam. So those work already. The, why doesn't the Navy just use that for their well, sonar? Well, electromagnetic radiation. Yeah, but it must be the processing the delay signals. It's probably really similar, I would think, isn't it? Um, well, it's just a lot slower. Uh -huh. um, Give you more time for your processor to work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that that's how it works. But, uh, <laughs> um, but isn't some of the, diff some, some of the differences if, if a bat wanted to eat any bug out there? then it would be a lot less of a hard problem, right? And then it would just be a location, sure. object location. they want to eat the stuff they like the best. Yeah, so they have to tell what it is and, and what they like to, so there has to be some optic recognition. Yeah. Presumably, it, uh, like an air-to-air -air missile would just shoot down any airplane. That yeah, actually the attention at. problem in an air-to-air -air missile is, that is non-existent because somebody told uh -huh. it, pay attention to this one. But as the thing moves, it has yeah. to track it. But for the... For the uh, bat, it has to say, that looks like something that I like. I'm going to ignore the other stuff and go after that one. That's why you were talking about well, attention. But that, that, that's another point. Uh, that could be dogma, I mean, which is to say that it could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think most people that work with bats know that you can 
You just throw a rock up in the air, and a bat will swoop down and check it out. Uh -huh. Now, as far as I know, they don't eat the rock, <laughs> so but they they do go look at it. So. I see. So maybe it's when they get up close, they decide what it is. Yeah. By smell or some other thing. Uh, and while it's kind of, there is some evidence uh, that some bats are picky about the bugs they eat. Uh, that's not really widely studied. Most bats, if you study their, their stomach contents, you'll find a lot of bugs. And it'll be mostly representative of whatever's in the area. Right? So yeah. for us, if we have a particularly bad season of love bugs, then the bats are going to eat a lot of love bugs. If there's June beetles, they're going to eat June beetles. Uh, so we're not going to explain to the podcast no. listeners what a love bug is. <laughs> Come on down that. to the gulf. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so really, so, but some bats are not predators, aren't? What is a fruit bat? That's like a kind of bat that you, I thought. Well, it preys on fruit. <laughs> but the fruit doesn't fly around. No, it's, it's a fundamentally a, different operation. They have to recognize a shape, I guess, and a, yeah, and a yeah. smell, maybe. So, so the, the fruit bats do offer uh, an interesting contrast. So most of them still do echolocate, but they use very simple broadband clicks. Uh, they don't modulate the, the acoustic properties of the pulses. Uh, they're not especially good echolocators. And in fact, most of them echolocate out of their nose which is required if you want to fly back home with a fig in your mouth. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Kind of makes yeah. sense. So uh, these, for in general terms, these used to be called whispering bats because you could put a microphone in front of them and not detect the pulses. Uh, Don Griffin actually really wrestled with this problem because this includes vampire bats. Vampire bats echolocate, but it's hard to tell because you practically have to stick the microphone up their nose to detect the pulses. So these bats aren't detecting targets far away. They're following a path. Uh, they're quickly responding to large obstacles, but they're not, you know, hunting by echolocation. Other than you know, to the extent that you have to find a tree or a cow, uh, and cows aren't that hard to find. <laughs> I mean, if you're a vampire bat. So how uh, much of the echolocation is used as part of the their? Because they have to. Do they find their? They always find their way back to their original roost, or do they just kind of hang out wherever they end up? No, most bats have uh, preferred roosting sites. They may move around a bit uh, in an area, depending on the type of bat. Um, the free-tail bats are pretty. Uh, they have high fidelity to certain caves around here, uh, and when they find a nice roosting site, they'll stay there for a while. The free-tailed bats, though, because they're so migratory, they do seem to travel more than other so bats. What are they do? Are they are they like dead wrecking? Like, what are they? How are they? Because they're not visual. What, how are they f navigating these large? Because they they have huge areas that they that they graze or whatever the equivalent yeah, is. Yeah. So, well, I'll just talk about the the free-tailed bats. So, anyone that's been to the the Congress Avenue Bridge in Austin knows what it smells like, right? <laughs> And I'm pretty sure that that smell is there to help bats find a roost. And they help create that smell. Well, yes, they yeah. definitely, intentionally, yeah. I mean, okay. evolutionarily, their urine produces that smell, and it creates this plume that goes high oh, up I into see. the sky. And so if your bat's flying through the area, it, they, I'm pretty sure that they have no trouble finding and following that plume to their cave or roost site. Uh, and that's why if you get bats in your house and they stay for any amount of time and make a mess, uh, then you're never going to get rid of bats. 
you can get rid of those bats, but if your house smells like bats, you're going to keep getting bats over and over again. So it's a beacon. Yeah. yeah. But that's the, the free-tailed bats, and they are unusually smelly bats. Uh, but but that having said that, most bats use pheromones to some extent, just on a, a more local scale. Uh, if you go to most of North America where you have bats that live in trees, they don't form these giant colonies. Uh, they'll have just four or five trees in a given area that they like to roost in a hole. And they may share it with a few other bats, but they're not social like the, the free-tailed bats are. So what do you, is, it, is it pheromones that are the, that are the cue that, the, that determine, for example, the, the phase shift interference between two conspecifics versus like the large group uh, uh, back-off algorithm switching oh. between these two? Like what, how does... No, I that mean, happened. the pheromones definitely play a role in social behaviors, uh, probably group cohesion, but, but in the real time, the pheromones are, are way too so slow. Are these the same neurons that are doing that, the, the two different strategies for how to deal with interference in, in smaller groups versus larger groups? Like, what um, do you imagine? Okay, we don't know. Well, well, I think uh, I think we're I'm talking about two different things, but it, it, within the auditory system, yeah, I think that it's just one system that's mm -hmm. processing both communication and sonar processing. Does that make sense? Is that yeah? What you're I'm asking? confusing the two systems again. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, with pheromones, I'm actually referring to the olfactory system, mm. uh, and. The, the, the free-tail bats have a pretty big olfactory bulbs. Uh, within the lab, we, we've tried to do experiments, but they are not motivated to track an olfactory source. Uh, but clearly, they use olfaction uh, outside in nature for finding groups and staying in groups. Uh, fruit bats are actually much more motivated by olfaction. Right? Fruit bats hunt fruit by smell. Uh, they use their sonar to find a tree, and then they search that tree for fruit, but then they don't just eat any fruit. They use their nose to find the ripe fruit, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I think olfaction in bats is something that would be really fun to study, although really difficult. Anyone else? You guys are going to start the most interesting conversation when I sign off. That's what usually happens. All right. Thank you, Mike Smotherman, for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.